Well, good morning. It's good to be with all of you here at Gospel of Grace. Happy New Year to all of you. All right. Well, today we come to a summary of Jesus' ethical standards thus far in the Sermon on the Mount. That is for his people. And we're going to learn today that because God has given us so good a gift, in fact, he promises to give us great gifts. That's what we looked at last time. We're going to learn today that at least we can treat others as we ourselves would want to be treated. Now, in our world today, and it's very popular, especially in the secular community, the idea of loving yourself is often lauded as being the highest good. In fact, in some sense, this was popularized back in 1985 by Whitney Houston's song, The Greatest Love of All. Now, I'm not blaming Whitney Houston for this attitude. It was prevalent in all Americans. But I do want to lay out the lyrics for you just to think about for a moment. 1985, the greatest love of all song said, Because the greatest love of all is happening to me, I found the greatest love of all inside of me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. Well, today, Christ is going to challenge that attitude because truth be told, we love ourselves just fine and too much. And so today, we're going to be challenged by Christ our Lord to replace this self-love with a selfless love for others. And so today, you and I are going to learn that we ought to be those who live by the golden rule and do unto others as we would want done unto us. And thereby, we're going to be fulfilling the great commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, I want to begin here just by mentioning that we're only going to be covering one verse today. Something that Bob had taught me many years ago is count your concepts. When we get to the next section in Matthew, we get into the narrow and the wide gate. So I want you to think about verse 12 as a summary of all that Christ has said regarding the ethics and the morality of the kingdom thus far in the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's what we come to here in verse 12. Here Jesus says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Now I want to begin by pointing out this phrase that in everything we are to treat others as we want to be treated. The phrase in everything probably means here in all aspects of life. We are to treat others as we would want to be treated ourselves, meaning that we are not to hold on to some area in our lives where we say we are entitled to be self-centered. No, we are to be those who always want to treat others as we want to be treated. In fact, what's very interesting is this phrase that Jesus says is put in the positive way that we are to do unto others as we want done unto us. There was a very famous rabbi named Hillel who lived roughly at the time of Jesus, just slightly before, around 20 AD. He was challenged by some Gentile asking him, to give a summary of the, the gospel, or excuse me, not the gospel, but of the law. And what Hillel said is he said it in a negative way. He said, do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. Now he puts it in the negative way. Listen to what Robert Mounts, the great scholar in the book of Matthew said. He said, in the negative form, the golden rule could be satisfied by doing nothing. But in the positive form that Christ gives it to us in, it moves us to action on behalf of others, unquote. I think that's well said. He's exactly right. First of all, I want you to notice this idea of treat. Literally, you could render it do. The term poieo means to do to others as we want them to do unto us. 
Now, when we say that, this assumes a godly and a healthy desire for ourselves. And what I mean by that is think about perhaps an individual who is engaged in the homosexual lifestyle. And they, of course, would want to be treated in a way in which they're accepted. And so they look at this verse and they say, well, I'm going to therefore accept other people's sexual immorality. No, that is not a good application of this verse. Because elsewhere in the scriptures, we learn, for example, from 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that homosexuality is a sin before God. In fact, those who commit such sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. Therefore, you need to repent of that. Or let me give you another example. Let's take someone who is mentally ill and perhaps suicidal. And they say, well, I don't mind dying. Therefore, it's okay for me to go and kill others. Well, of course, that would be immoral. 1 Peter 4.15, murder under the new covenant is certainly prohibited by God. And so Jesus is assuming a godly and healthy desire for ourselves. But the idea here is that the significance, I think, of this moral standard can be easily seen when you consider all of the other commandments that we are given for other human beings are easily fulfilled if we simply live by the golden rule. If you don't want to be murdered, you're not going to murder. You don't want to be stolen from, you're not going to steal. You don't want to be slandered, you're not going to slander someone else. And so in some sense, this rule that Christ gives really is a summary of the entire law. And that's why he says, notice in blue, he says very carefully, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, sometimes the law and the prophets When we read that phrase, it refers to our Old Testament. In fact, it probably alludes to that here as well. Now, sometimes the scriptures are declared to be the law, the prophets, and the writings. It's tripartite. But sometimes it's just abbreviated the law or the law and the prophets, etc. But here, what I think Jesus is accentuating is the law and the prophets specifically with their ethical and moral standards that are taught within Now, I think all of us can say, yes, I know that there are ethical and moral standards found within the law, but what about the prophets? Today in Sunday school, I had mentioned that the prophets, remember, not only did something called foretelling, where they did indeed foretell the future, but they were also engaged in something called forthtelling, where they would tell the people of God that they must repent, or they would tell the unregenerate that they have to come to faith in Yahweh. And they would lay out the ethical and moral standards for the people of God. In fact, a very famous verse that says this very thing is found in Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8, very famous. Micah says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now today, we really do have then in Matthew 7.12, a summary of, of all that Christ has given us ethically thus far in the Sermon on the Mount. But I want you to think about, in particular, two passages that Jesus is linking back to. The first is found in Matthew 7, 1 through 2. Remember, that was our famous passage. We said it's the official verse of the unregenerate world. Remember, it says, judge not. And that's a lot of the Bible that most of the unregenerate know. That's all they know. Judge not, but it goes on to say, judge not lest you be judged for in the same way you judge, it will be judged unto you. And by the same measure you measure others, it'll be measured unto you. In other words, treat others even in judgment 
as you yourself want to be treated. Another passage I think this clearly links back to is Matthew 5.17 because of the reference to the law and the prophets. In fact, there may be an inclusio between Matthew 5.17 and here Matthew 7.12. Notice here Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Jesus filled to the full all of the requirements of who the Messiah was to be as taught in our Old Testament scriptures. Now, two things I want to bring up regarding this phrase, the law and the prophets that you see in both texts. There are two ways that we can get the Sermon on the Mount wrong. The first is to think that somehow you and I will see what Jesus has commanded and simply pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and say, hey, I'm going to start doing everything that Christ commanded and earn my way into the kingdom of God. That would be a misreading of the Sermon on the Mount. No, Jesus is the one who had to fulfill it on our behalf. Jesus, truth be told, is the only one who ever loved his neighbor as himself and loved the Lord his God with all of his being. And so we need, by faith, Jesus Christ's righteousness credited to our account. That is one of the messages that clearly comes from a good reading of the Sermon on the Mount. That what Christ lays out for us, we can't do in and of ourselves. But the second error that we can run into is where we look at what Jesus calls us to and say, well, I don't really have to bother with that. No, what's being taught in the Sermon on the Mount is that those who belong to Jesus Christ by faith, filled by the Spirit, will be the people who start walking in Christ's footsteps and start loving the Lord their God with all their being, loving their neighbor as their self. That's the idea. That you and I really would do unto others is we want done unto us. Now, I want to show you also a link between the golden rule, do unto others as you want done unto you, and the great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, that we see later in Matthew 22. Now, before I put the Matthew 22 passage, let me, before I put it on the screen, let me set a little context. Remember in Matthew 22, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are playing that famous game, Stump Jesus. And they're not very good at it. The Sadducees tried to deny the resurrection. By the way, the old joke, that is why they're sad, you see, because they deny the resurrection. Well, Jesus obliterates their arguments and he proves there is a resurrection. Well, now we pick it up where the Pharisees are at bat. They're going to challenge Jesus. Matthew twenty-two thirty-six through 40. The Pharisee says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, so this is Jesus' response. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, dear ones, first of all, notice Jesus cites Deuteronomy 6, 5, that we should love the Lord our God. And in essence, when he says your heart, your soul, and your mind, it's with all of your being. So the first part of the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your being. Deuteronomy 6.5. But the second comes from Leviticus 19.18, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. And notice Jesus says that the entirety of the law and the prophets depends upon this. The term depend, krenonomi, literally means to hang upon. So in other words, 
unless you love the Lord, your God with all your being and love your neighbors yourself, you cannot really in any sense claim to live out the law in the prophets. Brothers and sisters, today, the golden rule that we're going to flush out more in our application, where we have to do unto others as we want done unto us, is the practical way in which we love neighbor as self. So think about doing unto others as you want done unto you. That's the practical way in which you are going to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the connection that I want you to see. And that's why Jesus says, if you do unto others as you want done unto you, you fulfill the law and the prophets. Matthew seven twelve. Okay, with that, let's come to some applications. One of the blessings with only covering one verse is we can kind of flush this out. And I can show you some of the wisdom that the rest of the biblical text will have for us to elucidate this verse. Let's begin with number one. We should know that belonging to Christ demands we love others as ourselves. Again, not to earn salvation, but because we belong to Jesus Christ who earned it for us. And we are walking as followers in his footsteps. Number two, we should be aware that hypocritical treatment of others is linked to the spirit of antichrist. Think of it this way. If doing unto others what you want done unto you is in some sense the fulfillment of the law of Christ, then doing unto others what you don't want done unto you is really lining up with antichrist. We'll lay that out for you. And I think there's some application for the culture we live in because I've never seen such hypocrisy in the public square. Number three, we must know that God will judge those who mistreat others. One thing that we see in scripture is that the vengeance belongs to the Lord. That you and I can take comfort that one day God will take care of those who have routinely mistreated and abused other human beings in this world. But the key for everyone listening to this, I trust that 99% of you here and listening are believers. But if there's anyone who's not a believer, you need to flee from the wrath of God who will hold you accountable for every time you didn't do unto others as you'd want done unto you. So let's begin with number one. I want to make again the link between the golden rule and loving your neighbor. And again, Jesus' ethic of this golden rule and loving your neighbor is rooted in the Old Testament. And I want to show you how it comes about in the law. First of all, as I've cited earlier in the New Testament, Leviticus 19.18 is primary. Here's what the Lord had instructed the Israelites. He said, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, the first thing I want to point out here is notice that we shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge. Now, the idea of not taking vengeance, of course, does not prohibit the right of self-defense. I laid that out in that passage where we talked about turning the other cheek. So in self-defense, We are preserving our bodies and other people's right to live. In vengeance, we are trying to preserve hurt feelings. You see the difference? Think about you're at a gas station and someone tries to harm someone physically. You step in to aid that person made in the image of God. That's self-defense. You're at the gas station and someone bumps into your car and you track that rascal down to find out and give him a piece of your mind, 
That's vengeance. So you and I are not to be a vengeful people nor bear a grudge. Why? Because that grudge is really a hatred towards other people made in the image of God. And we learned earlier in the Sermon on the Mount that we have to be, as Jesus said in Matthew 6, 12, to be those who forgive the trespasses against us. That's the kind of people we are to be. But notice attached to this then is that you and I are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, this is a very high calling. And this high calling involves, as I laid out today, the idea of doing unto others what we would want done unto us. And so that's why we see the same thing cited over and over. You shall love the Lord, excuse me, love your neighbor as yourself. You see the same thing in Galatians 5.14. Paul says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is what you and I want to accomplish, loving our neighbors as ourselves. Today, Matthew 7.12 is the practical way we can do it. That, hey, if I don't want to be mistreated or slandered, stolen from, murdered, abused, I'm not going to do that to others. And again, I say that not because we treat others well in order that we are treated well. Oftentimes we may not be. But we simply treat others well because we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as followers of him, we put others ahead of our own. And so that's what I want to show you today There's practical ways that you and I, I think, can put others ahead of ourselves and love others as we've been called to. In our culture, we're called to love yourself. That is often considered, again, the highest good. And if you will just simply love yourself, all other things will fall into place. But what the scriptures teach is that we love ourselves enough. We love ourselves plenty. The problem with fallen humanity is that we don't love others as much as we love ourselves. And so that's why we see that we have to be called to love others as ourselves and put others' interests ahead of our own. Listen to what Paul says, Philippians 2, 3 through 4. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Dear ones, notice this regarding one another is more important than yourselves. The culture says regard yourself as the most important. The Bible, knowing our sin nature, says consider others more important. Why? Because the Bible knows that you and I think we're important enough. So the scriptures, one of the things that when you read these ethical demands, it really shows you that the author of the Bible knows human nature far better than the culture does. You ever looked at people in prison and they often say, well, if they just love themselves enough, there was one day a poll that was taken and it was a very scientific one. It was done by some scientific community in a academic setting And they found, ironically, those who were incarcerated for many, many years, they had the highest self-esteem. So do you know that those who are incarcerated, who have done unto others as they would never want done unto them, they're not suffering from a lack of self-love. They're suffering because they don't love others as themselves. And so notice very practically, that's why you and I are called to look out not only for our own interests, but the interest of others. That's what it looks like to 
do unto others as you want done unto you, that you start taking yourself out of the equation and saying, what is in the best interest of that person? Uh, one passage that popped into my mind as I was thinking about this is Romans twelve fifteen. Romans twelve fifteen calls us to do unto others as we want done unto ourselves by building what I like to refer to as a godly empathy. Remember, Paul says there, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Think about the opposite for just a moment, and it becomes clear what Paul means by that. And I want to relate it to this idea of putting others' interest ahead of our own and doing unto others as we want done unto us. If you are going to rejoice when the other is weeping, it says you really want the person to suffer and you enjoy it. And when they're rejoicing and you're weeping, it really says that you aren't happy that this person is doing well in life. And so as we build a godly empathy, we really have to build within ourselves, it's all by God's grace, this empathy in which we really do look for the best interests of others besides ourselves. Think about what customer service would look like in America today if this were done. I don't know about you, but I've dealt with some companies a time or two where I could tell my interest was not in their heart. They didn't care if I ever, in fact, if you ever talk to some of the companies, their helplines, you may just be hung up on and you'll never talk to a human being. You've all been through that. Think about what the DMV would be like. If you traveled there and they put others' interests ahead of their own. But I want to assure you that one day in the future kingdom that Christ sovereignly brings graciously by his power alone, this will be lived out because the participants of the kingdom have been changed within. And one day in our glorified state, we will no longer sin again. And we really will fully put others' interest ahead of our own, we really will do unto others as we want done unto us. And isn't it ironic that during that period in the millennial kingdom, Jesus says in Isaiah 2.4, it's from Isaiah, but it's the Lord speaking through it, that one day the spears will be beaten to plowshares, the swords into, or I'm sorry, the swords into plowshares, the spears into pruning hooks, and no longer will the nations learn war. One of the reasons is because people really will love their neighbor as themselves. They really will do unto others as they want done unto them. Okay, now I want to show you how Paul talks about the same idea specifically with believers, but I think it applies to other people as well. In Romans 15, 1 through 2, where yes, we are to long for the edification and the good for others. That's when one way we can do unto others is we want done unto us. Think of it this way. How many in a year have ever had a favorite mechanic and inevitably, if you've ever had a favorite mechanic work on your car, the reason they're probably your favorite is because they treated, and you know the saying, your car like it was their own. That you knew if they put that part in, they would have done it to their own vehicle because that's how they treat you. They treat you just like they do themselves. Or how about the doctor who treats your mother or your father or your grandmother or grandfather just like they would their own relative? That's the kind of doctor you want. Well, dear ones, that's exactly what Paul calls us to 
here in Romans 15, 1 through 2. Notice he says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Now notice in verse 1 where Paul is talking about the strong versus the weak. The strong versus the weak that he's referring to has to do with Christians. The strong Christian is the Christian that understands the Christian liberty that we have. For example, we know from Mark 7:19 that the Lord Jesus declared all foods clean. I can eat bacon, I can eat pork till the cows come home, and it doesn't matter. But there may be a weaker Christian who doesn't understand the liberty that they have. The point that Paul is making here is that the stronger Christian who understands the liberty they have has to bear with the weaker, not just run roughshod over them in order to preserve them in the faith as they grow. But as we look at verse 2, notice he says to each, each of us is to please his neighbor. I think there's a, wiser, a wider application than just for believers. It's for all people that were really to look for their good, for their edification. The term edification there literally means to be built up. And so you and I are called by the Apostle Paul, speaking for Christ, saying we must look in the most comprehensive way to look and build up others, whether it's physically or spiritually. And that's one of the ways that you and I are going to do unto others is we want done unto us. Think about there's a recent example where there was a man who lived this out. He was looking to build up others who were hurting. How many of you have heard of this great blizzard that they had out in Buffalo? I mean, great in the sense of massive, not that it was wonderful. About a week ago, they had 48 inches of snow, major wind, very cold temperatures that hit Buffalo. And there was a particular man, I, I jotted his name down. The last name is Wythey, W-I-T-H-E-Y. Some of you perhaps read the article. Well, he went out on the road to try to find a friend who was lost, and he got stranded himself. Well, he went from door to door, thinking that he's going to die if he doesn't find shelter. And person after person he came to rejected him and would not allow him to spend the night in their home. In fact, he even was willing to offer $500. Now, isn't it interesting? The people who rejected him, I don't think were doing unto him what they would want done unto themselves. Would they want to be thrown out on a cold night in the blizzard and die? I don't think so. But was it, it was very interesting. This is much like the Genesis 50 situation where, do you remember what Joseph's brothers did for evil? God meant for good. Providentially, God used this man to save over 20 people. Because as he was rejected, he ended up by his vehicle. And there's an elderly woman that he ends up saving. He gets her in his vehicle. And then his vehicle runs out of gas and they go to her vehicle. Well, then there must have been a lull in the storm and for some reason he could see a school all of a sudden and it was about 600 yards away if I recall well he took brake pads he must have been some sort of a mechanic they were in the back of his truck and he breaks the windows of the school finds about 20 people brings them into the school he finds a bunch of mats so that they can sleep he gets just the food that they need not too much but just the food that they need from the cafeteria and he feeds them 
And not only that, the next day, listen to the note that he wrote because he felt bad that he had to break the window. He literally wrote this. And by the way, he even fixed the window. He put cardboard over it and put a bunch of tape around it. And he said to quote, this is Mr. Wythe. He said, quote, to whomever it may concern, I'm terribly sorry about breaking the school window and for breaking in the kitchen. He said, I had to save everyone and give them shelter and food and a bathroom. Merry Christmas. Then he signed his name. Jewins, that man was doing unto others as he would want done unto himself. And by the way, I think he really was a believer. He was, they called him a religious man. I like to think that perhaps he was a follower of Jesus Christ. Dear ones, doing unto others as we want done unto ourselves is not always easy. And it does really require a servant heart here and now. And that's why as Bob and I have laid over years, the concept that the only way you will do these things, the only way you'll put your neighbor ahead of yourself is if you really believe in the promises to come. Because for those who don't believe in the promises of the kingdom, the resurrection and the glories, you'll live to get all you can here and now. But for those who really believe those things are true, all of a sudden you can say, you know what? I'll suffer now for the glories later. Brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus Christ, who laid it all down for us on the cross, we have a very high calling to put the interest of others ahead of our own, to do unto others as we want done unto us. Okay, now let me come to my second point here. And I want everyone to see, and I'll build this case, and you can all throw fruit at me if you don't think I build it uh, biblically. But I believe that by treating others in a hypocritical way, in ways that we would not want to be treated, is lining up with Antichrist. So let me lay out the logic for you, and I'll show you biblically where I think I'm right. If doing unto others as we want done unto ourselves, is the fulfillment of Christ's law, then the opposite, doing unto others as you would not want done unto you, is, in a sense, lawlessness. It's lawlessness. And it's lining up with Antichrist. In fact, ironically, later in Matthew 7.23, we'll come to this, Jesus says, and then he's talking about the unregenerate. He says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those who are not attached to Christ by faith are those who are characterized by lawlessness. If what makes us characterized by belonging to Jesus is doing unto others as you want done unto you, then those who are characterized by not belonging to him are those who do unto others what they would never want done unto them. Point two, the Antichrist is called the man of lawlessness. And the people who belong to him are characterized by the same hatred and hypocrisy that the Antichrist is. Number three, the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world. So says the Apostle John in 1 John 4, 3, and so the man of lawlessness, that spirit, is already at work in the last days. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 8. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 through 8. This, of course, is a discussion about the Antichrist, the man of 
lawlessness. Second Thessalonians two, seven through eight. Notice in verse seven, it says for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Stop there. Isn't that exactly what John is saying in first John four, three, that the spirit of antichrist is already here. So the idea is that the one, one day in the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years, you will have the pinnacle expression of the spirit of antichrist or lawlessness in the person and work of the antichrist and his lawlessness. But it's already at work. This lawlessness in the age that you and I live in. So notice it says only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one, here's the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. During the church age, you and I are going to suffer the consequences of the spirit of Antichrist and lawlessness. Think about one thing that characterizes our culture today is hypocrisy. Where literally you have people in high places, whether it's in government or in business, that will very boldly do unto others as they don't want done unto themselves. Think about Gavin Newsom. He comes to my mind. He says, you have to wear a mask. You can't go to a restaurant while he goes to a restaurant and doesn't wear a mask. And you know what? He doesn't blush. It's lawlessness. It's lawlessness. Do unto others as you are not going to live out yourself. Think about those who are running Twitter. The upper echelon running Twitter were colluding with the government, the FBI, to take the freedom of speech away while they themselves want the freedom of speech. Those who are running off to the climate change conferences in their G4, burning tons of CO2. I've seen what those engines will do. I've flown some pretty big aircraft myself. All the while telling you, you can't drive your SUV or your 9.9 Johnson uh, trolling motor. Are you with me? Or you have those who have been dedicated to murdering the unborn, demanding protection from the pro-lifer to preserve their life. The hypocrisy and doing unto others as they would not ever want done unto them is astonishing. We are drowning in it. And what's so unusual, I think, about the situation we find ourselves in is the people who do these things, they don't blush anymore. And they're not in any way removed from power, but merely rewarded and elevated. This type of hypocrisy and doing unto others, as they would never want done unto themselves, is lawlessness. And it is a lawlessness that will reach a zenith in the future 70th week of Daniel. In fact, in Matthew 24, 10, as Jesus describes this time period and the lawlessness and the hatred and hypocrisy towards others, he says, at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And then he links this. Notice Matthew 24, 12. He says, because lawlessness is increased, Most people's love will grow cold. Notice the idea of lawlessness doing unto others as they would never want done unto them. That is going to characterize the people within the 70th week of Daniel. Why? Because they belong to antichrist, not Christ. Christ's people are home. But all you have left are those who will do unto others as they would never want done unto them. 
And what does it say? Lawlessness is increased and their love grows cold. What is the definition of loving your neighbor? Today we learn doing unto others is you would want done unto you. That's the biblical case that I would lay out for you today to understand the milieu, the situation, however you want to put it, that you find yourselves in. The situation you find yourselves in is one that's dominated by lawlessness. Brothers and sisters, you and I belong to Christ and not Antichrist. And therefore, you and I have to be those, by his grace, who will not live in a lawless way, but will genuinely long to put others' interests ahead of our own and to do unto others as we would want done unto us, all because we are those who follow Christ. Okay, now, let me come to this final point today. And that is, as lawlessness abounds and we see the hypocrisy and the mistreatment of so many people, one man that comes to my mind is, you know, we have a constitutional right under the law in the United States to have a speedy trial. Well, there was a Green Bray who fought for our country who's been locked away in the Washington Gulag for over 434 days on a misdemeanor charge. And you see mistreatment of people like this time and time again in our lawless society. And it's very easy to become discouraged. So what I want to share with you in this last couple of slides is that one day God will write the ship and the new sheriff who comes, the Lord Jesus Christ will write the wrongs and all of the mistreatment done to other people. In fact, in some sense that's alluded to in the passage we had studied in Matthew seven, one through two, where Jesus says, do not judge so that you will not be judged for in this, in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. What stood out in my mind is notice in red where it says it will be measured to you. How many people that are mistreating others are going to want to be measured by the Holy One of Israel in the way that they've been measuring it out to others? It's not going to go well for them. But this is also a reminder to us that perhaps there may be somebody sitting here or somebody listening. Truth be told, you're not a believer. And all of these things will be accrued to your account because truth be told, not one of us has ever done unto our neighbor as we want done unto us perfectly. We have all fallen short and we've all sinned, as it says clearly in Romans 3.23. And the news gets even worse when we consider Romans 2.5. Notice what Paul says. He says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The people who do not have the atonement of Jesus Christ, they are accruing wrath in a bank account. Day after day, as they fall short in doing unto others, as they would want done unto them, that is being accrued to their account, and they're storing up wrath. That's very bad news. And so that's why every single person should flee by faith to Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. But it's also a reminder to us that God will not tolerate lawlessness indefinitely, that one day he will graciously judge those who have mistreated others. Let me leave you with this, Matthew 25. Do you remember Matthew 25? There's the juxtaposition between the sheep and the goats. And the sheep are those who belong to Jesus Christ. And part of the evidence that they are is Jesus says that they did it to the least of these, my brethren, therefore they did it to me. 
In other words, they did to fellow believers what they would want done to themselves. When they were sick, they visited them. When they were in prison, they visited them. When they were hungry, they fed them. When they were thirsty, they gave them something to drink. And so as they did it to the least of the brethren, that is believers, they were regarded as doing it to Christ himself. And so these sheep will enter into the kingdom of God. But then the goats come up. And the Lord finds them living in a way that is displeasing to him because they don't do unto others as they want done unto themselves. Listen to what they say. It says, then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Verse 45, it says, then he will answer them. Truly, I say to you. To the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Stop there for just a moment. Notice the phrase, you did not do it to one of the least of these. In verse 40, that's connected to the brethren. There was mistreatment of believers. And so the idea is when they saw a believer who was hurting, they didn't do to them as they would want done unto themselves. And so notice in verse 46, he says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous unto eternal life. Dear ones, it's very clear that one day God will judge those who mistreat others. What we have to come away with, I think, from that is that praise be to God for us who fled to Jesus Christ by faith. Because we fled to a savior whose atoning work covered over our sins And that we have his righteousness imputed to our account. That's what every single person needs. Every single human being needs to have the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness that comes from Christ. The bad news revealed in the Bible is very bad. That all of us have rebelled against God in thought, word, and deed. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The news gets even worse when it says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Not just temporary death where we have separation of body and soul, but one day eternal death, separation from God in the lake of fire. That's why God sent forth his son. The good news, as we studied last week, is that God became man. At a point in time in history, through a virgin birth, God became man so that he could live the perfect life that none of us could. That he really, for the first time, would love the Lord his God with all his being, love his neighbor as himself, and he would do unto others as he would want done unto him. And it's by his perfection, through faith in him, that his righteousness can be clothed to us, credited to our account, so that one day we can stand before God. This Jesus not only lived a righteous life, but he died a substitutionary death. Jesus the just on behalf of us, the unjust, in order that we might be brought to God. The proof that Jesus accomplished this atonement by taking upon himself the full measure of God's wrath that we as believers deserve to be punished with, it was proven by the fact that on the third day after his death, he was bodily raised from the dead. The resurrection of Christ proves all of his claims. He's the only one in history who ever predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection and then pulled it off. The resurrection proves all of what Jesus said in John 14, 6, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father but by me. We can believe it. Why? God raised him from the dead. This Jesus also ascended bodily and is seated at the right hand of God, fulfilling Psalm 110.1. From where he's coming to bring glorious salvation for his people. But wrath and judgment upon all of those who did not do unto others as they would want done unto themselves. And that's a whole heap of a lot of people. What must we do? Jesus commands every single person to repent, turning from idolatry and unbelief, turning to God on his terms, which is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Today, if you will trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be given the forgiveness of sins. You will be credited with a righteousness that is foreign to you, that you desperately need so that you can stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God. Today is the day. Trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ and find the fulfillment of the law. All because Jesus Christ came to do what we couldn't for ourselves. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this high calling that you give us to love others and to put one another's needs ahead of our own. We pray in the months and years ahead that you would help us by your power to do unto others as we would want done unto us. We pray that we'd be a gracious people, loving people that long to build up and edify those who are around us. We pray, Heavenly Father, for our loved ones, our family and friends who don't know you. We pray, Heavenly Father, you'd give us wisdom as to how to reach them. You give us boldness to proclaim your gospel and that you would regenerate their hearts, Lord, so that they may believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand, if you will, for the benediction. From Jude 24 and 25, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. God bless all of you. I hope you have a wonderful start to your new year.